Hi, I'm Emily Salaby, founder of Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company, and your host on the Hazard Girls podcast here on Jacket Media. I'm so honored to host this show where I get to chat with Hazard Girls about their careers. Hazard Girls is an online community for women working in traditionally male-dominated fields. On our show, you'll get to hear from these amazing women about the path that led them to their current careers, challenges they've overcome, advice for other women in entering these industries, and more. Jennifer Todd is the president of LMS General Contractors. Based in South Florida, LMS is a woman-owned demolition and environmental services contractor completing work across California and the Southeast of the U.S. She is also the founder of A Greener Tomorrow, a 501c3 nonprofit geared toward the skilled trade advancement of minorities and women. Jennifer is a 2020 engineering news record top 25 newsmaker. And she's a 2020 Construction Business Owner Magazine Outstanding Woman in Construction finalist, a 2021 Engineering News Record Top 20 Under 40 Professional, and 2021 Engineering News Record Southeast Young Professional. Jennifer is also a member of the American Society of Civil Engineers Industry Leaders Council and the National Association of Black Women in Construction. Not only that, but Jennifer is a graduate of ASU Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. She acquired her project management certificate from Emory University. Welcome to the Hazard Girls podcast, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me today, Emily. Well, I love meeting other law school survivors who are now doing really interesting non-law work. Were you originally on the path to become a practicing lawyer? I was not. I was not. So what was your what was your plan? My plan was to be a psychologist, and that did not work out, luckily. So So you went to undergraduate to do psychology? I did. I graduated from Georgia State. Since the age of seven, I thought that I was destined to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist, as my uncle wanted me to be because they made more money. Mm -hmm. And psychology didn't love me the way I loved it. You know, I could not get through statistics. And so as a backup, I said, I'll go to law school. In the midst of going and thinking about law school, I started as a receptionist in construction and said, Ah, I was gonna say, because you know, you know, you're, you've got a smart person you're dealing with when law school is the backup plan. (laughs) Because most people's goal is to get into who are in law school, their goal is to get into law school. And it's really hard work. And a lot of people don't even make it. So you got into law school as your backup plan, but you didn't really want to be a lawyer? I did and I didn't. And so I really wanted to uh, help people. And so I thought that being a lawyer was a way of helping people. And ironically, a lot of people don't know this, is that this was not my first attempt to go into law school. When I was working in the construction uh, for a construction company, I decided to enroll in law school and I made it through 1L and I said, this is too much. There's no way to manage work and school because the first day of law school, they say, quit your job because this Mm -hmm. is your full-time job. You cannot work in attend law school. It's it's almost impossible to really Mm -hmm. be successful. And so I dropped out after the first year, especially I was living in California. You've got to take the baby bar. I looked at it and I just almost passed out. (laughs) And I was just like, this is not going to happen right now. Yeah. And so it wasn't until I made the decision to start my company, LMS General Contractors, that I said, whoa, I better rethink this. If I'm going to be a minority in construction, if I'm going to be a woman in construction, who is going to protect me? And so I made the decision to 
enroll in law school again. And so I couldn't do it while I worked for someone else. But when my why changed, then I was able to successfully uh, finish law school at Arizona State University while starting a company. So that's incredible. And I, the why is so important, I think, to all of us. It's really our you know underlying motivation, why we do things. But I'm just curious, why was it that law school was the answer to helping you establish this business in construction? Because the connection might not be obvious to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, good question. The reason is is that prior to starting LMS, I worked for a minority company and I saw all of the upheavals that they dealt with. I worked with other women in construction. And when you are not the majority in something, you definitely have to protect yourself. I mean, construction is very litigious. You're talking about contracts and change orders and lien waivers and uh, all of that, you need a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And most small companies can't afford a legal team or can't afford an in-house counsel. And so even if you can afford to hire someone, they don't understand your business intimately if they're not there every day. Mm-hmm. So you're losing money. You have guys on the site, you're losing materials. And so you need to make decisions fast. And so I saw the issues that smaller companies and minority companies faced, and I didn't want to be in that sector. And so I said, who better to protect me than me? And so I definitely made the decision to enroll and said, hey, I'm going to figure it out as best as I can, but I want to be able to have this knowledge and my own skill set to rely upon as a safety net. That's that's such a great plan. And I'm just wondering though, how did you do it? Because you were in, you said it was really hard the first when you were 1L at first. So how did you manage then the second time around to do this full time while working and starting your new company? You know, because there wasn't a backup plan. And so uh, prior to starting LMS, I, it wasn't that I wanted to start the company. It was that I was living in Los Angeles and I was applying at various companies, mm-hmm. six companies, and they were saying, yeah, you've got a great resume, you've got experience, but we don't have anyone that looks like you. We don't have anyone that's your age. You think you need more time. You need more time. And I just said, no one's going to pay me to do the work that I'm capable of doing. So I kind of have to start my own thing. And I actually had a business that was already dormant, but I, I just wasn't using it. Really, I was kind of pushed into that idea. And so the, the wheels begin to turn of what do I need to succeed? So mm-hmm. I definitely knew I wasn't going to be an accountant. So I was like, I'll definitely give someone else that role. Mm-hmm. But I had always had that law school kind of in my back pocket as, you know, maybe to do it. And also, ironically, when I was going to school on my undergrad for psychology, I was doing my internship with Planned Parenthood. And so I thought that I would be doing therapy sessions. And they said, Mm -hmm. we have too many people. Can you work at the courthouse Mm -hmm. and file protective orders? And I was like, I don't want to do that. I want to be in the trenches helping the people, helping the women, the battered women and, and dealing with domestic violence. And they said, no, just can you do this until an opening becomes available? So I started working at the courthouse and that really reignited my passion for law and being able to serve people in a different way and being able to effectively help people that needed the help by getting them the protective orders. For some women, this was a a life-changing thing Mm -hmm. that they needed. And so that instance kind of propelled me to really rethink going to law school. And once I started working for the construction company and decided to do my own thing, I knew 
two things. One, I had to get a law degree, but also I had to be in charge of my GC license. I had to be the one to get the license. I didn't want another party or especially another man getting the license so that my aptitude would be tested. So, so okay, so you were working originally then as a, re- you said a receptionist in a law, in a and, construction firm? In construction. I started off as okay. a receptionist and did all the jobs. So how was that? I mean, how, so I know that when I was in law school, they some of the women that were in my class did the same, a similar thing where they would go and work as, as receptionist in a law firm. And then their plan was to work their way up in the law firm and get, and I know people that had that successfully did it and got and made it to partner. But people were saying like, that's, it's a really hard path to do it that way. It's because you're like fighting an uphill battle the whole time. How did you find it? Was, was it easy? No, nothing about law school is easy. Mm-hmm. But what was different from my experience was that I was a little older. So I had more experience than the traditional 1L students when you start and you're, you're going straight after your undergrad. So when I had, I was older, so I was more focused. Like, mm-hmm. I, like I had to get this done. Secondly, I had like on the job experience. So it made it a little easier in some instances, especially when it came to contracts, because I was able to mm-hmm. apply the knowledge that I had learned in the construction world, it's applicable to understand. And for me, making the information uh, easily accessible and, you know, easy to understand, like, oh, okay, this is a real life scenario that I can Mm -hmm. relate to, made things much easier for me. So I was able to be successful in it. But also, too, I made the decision to do an online program. Mm -hmm. And while many think that's an easier choice, it isn't because the time management is such a challenge. Yeah. I made it through, so. Yeah, congratulations. That's that's (laughs) awesome. Now, tell, so, okay, that was, you were working at the construction company. You made it through law school. And then was it toward the end of law school? Is that when you launched your company? No, I actually started LMS first. First. And so uh, it was almost kind of concurrent. And so once I started, probably a couple of months in, I had already applied to the law school and I got accepted. And so I had already started the path. So almost like not even three to six months later, boom, I'm starting law school after I'm starting this company. And so it was everything that could go wrong did go wrong during (laughs) this process. Oh, my God. But I was able to uh, able to stick through it, and that's the that's the biggest thing. Like I said, when you get to the why of why you want to do something, and understanding what the purpose is of what is it going to do, what you're going to be able to obtain, that's what you want to get into. For me, I have friends that are lawyers. I knew I didn't want to be a partner. I knew I didn't want to work at a firm. I knew that wasn't the course for me, and so I had no interest in, in doing that dogfight of eighty hours and mm-hmm. slaving it over contracts and drafts and going to court. I knew that that was not the path for me. I knew that this was specifically to enhance my business and specifically to be used for construction, the construction industry. Okay. Tell us all about your company, LMS General Contractors. How long have you been in operation now? This year, we celebrated nine years. Nine years. Okay. So what exactly is your main focus? Who You, you mentioned, and we mentioned a little bit in your intro that who you serve, but tell us all about your company. We want to hear about it. Yeah. So my initial project was disaster relief. So we were doing disaster relief construction services. So anytime there is a category two, three, four, five disaster that you encounter, natural disaster, 
I started off like that. And so my very mm-hmm. first project was in Alabama and it was a category five tornado. And so we were doing the consultant work as well as the disaster relief work. And that kind of fell into my lap. And it was really just a good relationship that I had with my boss. And he said, hey, look, we're doing the demo, but they need someone to do the consulting. Why don't you just start a company and just do the consulting on the side? And I was just mm-hmm. like, oh, okay. <laughs> And so that was that was uh, LMS 1.0. And so two years later, when I decided that I'm really going to start my own business, is the LMS that everyone knows today, which is LMS General Contractors. Yeah. And we do demolition and environmental services for agencies. And we also do a lot of like public works projects, housing projects, uh, hotels, motels, things of that nature. So any asbestos abatement, lead, any environmental work, soft demo, that's that's our wheelhouse. Okay, so you are a true hazard girl then because this is like demo work. Are these all government contracts? No, uh, some of it's private work. So a lot of it used to be public work. So mm-hmm. when I say public work, we're talking local city, state uh, work. And we also did some federal work as well, but a lot of it was for the state and for the cities that we worked in. And your nonprofit organization, A Greener Tomorrow, how did that come about? It really came about through serving through LMS. While working on a lot of the projects, we do work in inner cities. And so it was always kind of like an aha moment when the residents and the community would see us because they weren't accustomed to seeing a black demolition contractor and a black remediation contractor. They were like, wow, what's what's going on over here? And so a lot of people came to the gate and they wanted to know how could they get a job? Because when people see people who look like them and it resonates, they're going to let their guard down and be more comfortable. And so we would get an influx of people during the course of every job wanting to find out how they could get into construction and how they could get a job. So we started hiring people. And so A Greener Tomorrow really started from there. But I wanted to be able to serve more people. And so that's why I created the nonprofit to really create awareness, access and opportunities to minorities and women who want to join the space and they just don't know how to. So is is A Greener Tomorrow aimed at people of all ages or is it mostly young people? No, it's really for adults. So if you are between, we have kind of two sectors. Yes, we talk to a lot of the youth in middle schools and high schools to encourage them to join STEM and join the trades and let them know that, hey, you have people who look like you doing what you do. We need more engineers. We need more operators. But also we have a group from 18 to 30, 35, Mm -hmm. I'd say, of men and women that we reach out to to help them along the way. So right now what we're working on is we are reaching out to people and they are reaching out to us. And if you want to join the construction industry and you don't have a clue, we're basically uh, the liaison. So if you come to me and say, hey, I'm interested in construction, how can I start? I will get your information and I will find out where you're located and I will find programs to support you and get you in those programs. So this is kind of like the the therapist side of you coming out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like re- yeah reaching out to help people personally. Um, so, so is it basically like a connecting organization? Like you're connecting people who are looking to join the construction industry with the particular program that will help them. And that's the main function of your organization. 
yeah, as of right now, that's really what we're doing because I didn't want to do anything that just spoke. Not everyone wants to do demolition and remediation. Mm-hmm. I love it, but not everyone does. And I understand that, but I still want to give people an opportunity to be helped and to be served if you have an interest. And a lot of the things with interest is that one, people don't know. So even if mm-hmm. I were to tell you to go look it up, you don't know what you're looking for because you mm-hmm. don't know what you don't know. Right. So our goal is basically to provide that information, provide the access and let people know about the opportunities that exist. There's so many programs and organizations that will pay you to be an apprentice uh, that will provide Mm. you classroom and on-the-job training. And we just want to get those resources out to the people who need them. Yeah, I, I, had, I know there were a few questions I wanted to dig in with you. And one of them was about apprenticeship. So maybe this is a good time to, to tap into that because you just mentioned it. Talk about apprenticeship as a way to get people into the construction industry. Do you think it's the best path? I definitely think it's a, I don't know if it's the best path, but it's been the best path for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the, There are a lot of benefits uh, from an employer side of doing an apprenticeship. Of course, if you're thinking about business, you can think about the tax write-offs that you can do from hiring and creating apprenticeship programs. But another big benefit is that you are teaching the people how you work. When you have an apprentice, they don't come with bad habits. And so Mm -hmm. you can teach them the right way to get the work done. And so that really helps with the proficiency, which also helps with your bottom line. The third thing is that you are creating opportunities within your community. We see a lot of gentrification. We see a lot of cities that are being built up. The problem is that a lot of the community locals and people who are originally from the city are getting left behind or are being ousted outside of their communities because they can no longer afford to reside in those areas. So this is an opportunity to give back to the community, but also provide jobs for people who actually live within these communities. So apprentice, so how, if a business wants to get involved with this and create an apprenticeship program, but they haven't really done it in the past, how would they go about starting something like that? Well, there, there are a few ways that you can do it. If you really want to formalize it, you can actually go through your state and create a curriculum which supports the work that you do. Mm -hmm. And people get a little squeamish about that, but it's really not as difficult as you think it is because really you're just taking all of the tasks that you do on a day-to-day basis, creating a curriculum around that, that supports that and uh, getting it approved through the state. You can also get it approved nationally. And if you don't wanna do that, you can still create an apprenticeship program within your own organization to support that. And you can actually receive money and funding, which will help reimburse you for expenses. You can work with other organizations like the workforce centers. Mm-hmm. We've done a lot of work with them. And when we first started, it was it was really great because they were able to do the background checks and the drug screenings, even the OSHA and first aid certifications, they were able to provide that. They helped with obtaining the asbestos certifications that are needed. So you don't have to go it alone. Uh, You just really have to get a little research done to find out which way do you want to go and how do you, you know, what is the goal of the program? Is it to recruit new individuals? Is it to retain people? Mm -hmm. Are you looking for a specific demographic? Are you looking for a younger generation that will take place of your older employees? really dialing into what it is that what's your goal for your program. So with apprenticeship programs, is it that there aren't as many requirements for as far as previous education, like this is the education instead? Is that the idea? 
I think it's different when it comes to uh, the skill trades aspect. There's still a lot of requirements, especially if you're talking about an electrical apprenticeship mm-hmm. program. Some apprenticeship programs can be uh, up to four years. And so there, there's a lot of work to be done. The thing about it is that you're building a rapport with that person and you're creating a relationship with the employee so that they will stay and grow with your company. But also you're filling the labor shortage gap. So that's a big deal. Yeah, meeting workers. I mean, right now we get calls from people all over the country, five to seven calls a week of people looking for work or looking for opportunities or any sort of apprenticeship opportunities. And we just can't, we cannot support the amount of calls that we get per week. So people want to work. You just have to make sure that you are creating an environment that they want to work in and that they're willing to learn. Yeah, that's so true. Okay. Now I know that on LinkedIn and on some of the social media channels, you were talking about construction and women in construction, and you got a huge response that of people that were interested in getting involved in the industry. And it was such a big response that you were like, okay, I'm putting together a masterclass. Did I get that right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So you put together a masterclass and I think it's called, it's him, not you. Yes. And it was so popular that you ended up like having to bump it from like 100 to 150 or something like that. What was behind this response? What was, how did this happen? You know, it just happens that (laughs) I have become a, a spokesperson for women in construction by accident, just sharing my journey and my experiences and the experiences of some of my friends and colleagues who aren't able to publicly share their grievances. Mm-hmm. And so since I'm my own boss, I can't get fired. So that's really that's really what happened. But no, when I started in construction 15 years ago, there just wasn't enough. And I still don't think there is enough, but there definitely was no visibility. Mm-hmm. There wasn't anyone that I could pinpoint or relate to and say, I'd like to follow her journey, or if I could meet her, I would ask these questions. And that was really challenging because men give advice that is not valid for a woman. Like, right. you know, there are things that people say in the workplace that I cannot do, and that's not going to work effectively. And so it left me really frustrated. And so I get so many emails and messages and DMs per week with the same questions about how this person did this to me, you know, this person made me feel this way. I'm being Mm -hmm. overtalked at work. I'm not respected. What can I do? And so I said, you know what, I'm just going to put a class together to answer everyone's questions about the journey of being in construction and really to let women know it, it isn't you. If you have that icky feeling at work, if you feel as though that you are not being appreciated for the work mm-hmm. that you do, you're not being promoted, you're not being respected in meetings, it isn't you. It is him as in the system of the right. way that things are in the construction industry. So that's that psychotherapist part of you coming out again. <laughs> um, okay, so now I, I'm just curious, because I know you put on this big class and I I would love to be part of the next one so I can listen to everything that you've taught. But what were some of the main topics that people wanted to know about? And in general, like what are some of the the questions that you get over and over? I did get a large response from it. And so Agreeing Tomorrow, we made it available. It's for sale. So if you go to my LinkedIn page, you can can purchase the course and we create did an ebook to go along with it. Oh, nice. Large, the biggest thing that people struggle with in this industry, women being in a uh, 
male dominated industry is the confidence aspect. Mm -hmm. We feel as though we don't have enough confidence to be aggressive or be assertive or being labeled the bad guy. And so that was a big part of it and being learning to be authentic. And so I tell women, don't try to be a man per se, be who you are and embrace the fact that you are a woman and you have to lead with confidence and be able to advocate for yourself and be able to advocate for other women and other minorities in the space that you're in. So what were some of the things that are different as far as you mentioned that when you get the typical traditional advice from a man, it does not necessarily apply to us because when we go to implement that advice, we're looked at as a bitch, too aggressive, you know, I don't, who knows what the the litany of things. So what are, what's some of the advice that you would give for how we can handle how we could take the typical male advice and turn it around for ourselves? Well, great question, because a lot of it is about muscle memory. And so you have to practice these things. You're not just going to wake up one day and just feel empowered and all the imposter syndrome is just going to dissipate from your body. It doesn't happen Mm -hmm. like that. You have to continuously work at it, continuously work at creating boundaries with those around you, continuously stepping up to the plate, not expecting that just because you do your job that you're going to be acknowledged or you're going to be promoted. It's not going to happen like that. Continuously advocating and speaking up for yourself. If something is sexually inappropriate or Mm -hmm. uh, racially inappropriate, or if you feel as though there's some, you know, some sort of bias in the statement to address that with that person or address it with a manager head on, then really identifying your workspace because women only account for what, 10%, 11% of the industry, you're going to have workplaces that are not forward thinking yet, that are not there yet. And so is it the industry or is it your organization? And so Uh really identifying where you fall into that. If this is an organization that doesn't support women, doesn't support you, then it may not just be the industry, it may be the company that you're working for. And so you need to find somewhere else to work. If you dread coming to work every Monday and you feel like you're continuously being gaslit, that is not the place for you. Do you feel like it's the right answer? It's all. It's usually the right answer to just change companies or do you think it's worth it to try to change the system. And I mean, this is the extra work that gets put on us as women. It gets put on minorities as well. And is that what what, what do you recommend people do? Well, I recommend that people do whatever is best for them, because Mm -hmm. I can't say, Emily, you got to stick with it and you just got to tough it out and deal with it. Because if you don't have the mental fortitude or you just can't physically, you know, it's draining you every Mm -hmm. day, why would I tell you to be miserable if, right. if you don't, if this is something you're truly not passionate about? And I have seen women leave the industry because they said, I couldn't take it anymore. I was tired mm-hmm. of the fight. And so not everyone is up for the fight. And I appreciate it. I'm up for the fight. So just give it to me. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but if you're not up for the fight, then mm-hmm. understand that there are going to be pros and cons to this industry specifically. Mm-hmm. If you are, then you lead from where you are. You don't have to do the fight. But it costs nothing to speak up and say something about something that's wrong. Because we assume that because we see errors that everyone sees it. But a lot of times people will assume that if you don't say anything, that A, there's nothing wrong, or B, you're okay with the behavior. 
if you've never brought it to my attention that this is an issue or it bothers you that we don't have any women in management or it bothers you the fact that women aren't being promoted or we don't they don't have your superintendents are not being paid equally for the same work because one is a woman and one is a man then i don't see it as an issue a lot of companies now have these have diversity um, sections or diversity depart- departments um, diversity and inclusion and it's a huge step forward for us to have this now but do you see these departments in companies making a difference do you think it's changing the industry yes and no there are a lot of companies that are doing a lot of lip service and mm-hmm. they say the things but their actions are not reflective of it there's one particular company i was a little disappointed uh, just recently i saw linkedin posts and they shared management meeting that they had and it was in a major city and there were probably maybe a hundred people in the photo and they were all white males. And I think I saw like maybe two people of color and maybe two mm-hmm. women out of this hundred, mm-hmm. this hundred people. And I'm like, this is that's shocking. That's, I mean, I feel like that in this day and age, that's shocking. And I, I kind of cringed when I saw mm-hmm. it because one, I was surprised that this company posted this because right. they are known for being very progressive Two, you're in a major city. And three, I'm just like, do we not see the disconnect here mm-hmm. of, everyone in the picture almost looked the same they were the same age they had the same haircut and it's like (laughs) what wait a minute are you you know guys you obviously have a type hr has a type because everyone looks the same and i don't say Mm. that you know to say like because you're a certain race you look the same no these people literally it was just like oh my god this is like what is going on here and so i think that some companies are just disconnected at times that they don't even realize how shocking something like that can be. Because Mm -hmm. if you go to companies, you want to work where you're represented, you want to feel safe, you Mm -hmm. want to feel empowered. If you see something like that, you're going to make the presumption that this is probably not a place for me if I don't look like this and I don't have this particular haircut. So, I mean, yes, no. Oh my gosh, that's that's terrible. That's really terrible. I mean, I've seen changes, but it's, yeah. It really depends. And I mean, I appreciate the companies that are not addressing it at all because I know where you stand. I know that this isn't something that you're interested in. I can respect you more if you're saying nothing. But don't give a lip service. Yeah, if you're saying something and it's not representative. Because what a lot of employers don't realize today is that we used to do the hiring. And so today, uh, employees are hiring us. They're researching us. Mm -hmm. They're looking at our social media. They're, you know, talking to their friends and colleagues within the industry to find out what the temperature is like, you know, what the workplace culture is like, because they just don't want to come to work and work. They want to work in a space that reflects some of their core values Mm -hmm. socially and professionally. So I think that larger companies have to make the shift more because they lead the charge. They're losing out on the talent that way. They definitely are. And and people say, oh, we can't find anyone. And I'm like, well, where are you looking to find the people? If you're not looking in the places mm-hmm. where everyone can be served, then of course you're missing out on a lot of great talent that's here in this country. And speaking of talent and you know needing more of it in the industry and it, there being like a huge pool of it that's being overlooked, <laughs> let's talk about why we need more women in construction. What are your thoughts? 
well, we need more women in construction because we're amazing. So yeah, that's it. I mean, that's the bottom line. Yeah. So, <laughs> that's the short answer. The long answer is that we need more women in construction because women make up over half of the population in the U.S. And so why is it that we make up 56% of the population, but we make up 10.9% of this industry. Mm-hmm. And so what I impress upon people is that if we really want to make strides in this industry, then we need to have the industry reflect the country demographically as well as gender wise. And so we've got to make those changes like now because yeah. we're suffering as a result. And everyone knows that when you have women on your team, you have more innovative thinking, you have higher profit margins, you have more synergy when it comes to leadership, and you just it just makes sense. It doesn't make any sense at this point. Yeah, I mean, you would think these companies would, would understand that the bottom line being enough. You know, why, why isn't that enough for them to move forward? Are they just that stuck in their ways or do they, are they not aware of it? Well, the thing is, is that when you only have a male demographic making the decisions, Mm -hmm. who is going to say, we need more women? Like, who's saying that? Because we're not in the room. And so in order to make change and impact change, you have to be in the room. You have to have a seat at the table in order to make those decisions. And that's Mm -hmm. the importance of diversity and inclusion so that we can all be forward thinking about what we need. It's not just about how to get the work done, but who are we working with and how are we making the concerted efforts to get things done? Yeah. And and we're not always in the room, as you mentioned. And so that's why it's so important that we have male allies and allies representing diverse people, not just all the same type of person. Mm -hmm. So how can we encourage men to be allies to us? And for those who are our allies, I guess, how can we just support that and keep it going? I think that women, uh, we need to discuss how can we be supported. And so Mm -hmm. if you tell a person how they can support you Mm -hmm. in your career, then that is much better. But also finding out what's within that person's purview, because if you are my male colleague, you can't really vouch for me to get a raise, but you can talk to the other colleagues about being professional or not using certain language or not, Mm -hmm. you know, sexually inappropriate conduct. Mm-hmm. or being treated as a team player. If you are an ally in a management position, instead of talking to me about how I feel or what you think of me, you can tell me what I need to do to improve upon my work skills and how mm. to better myself and do more grooming so that I can be in a leadership position. If you are the head of the company, you can say to the women that hey, in HR, what can we do about getting more women in this specific roles here? Where are we lacking? How can we support you and in turn support and retain more women in the workplace? It's great advice. Okay, I know I did, did not give you a heads up on this question because but it, it came up in the Hazard Girls group. There was an article on LinkedIn by Coralie Beatty. Um, how to react to mansplaining what are your thoughts on that mansplaining and just microaggressions in general? What do you what do you think women and, and others should be doing when they are encountering this? 
Yeah, we talked about that in It's Him, Not You, uh, the master course that's available. And what I said about mansplaining, I said, hey, look, you need to do your woman'splaining. When you go <laughs> to the meeting, you know how he's all stretched out. You need to get everything out on the desk too. get your notepad, get your laptop and, and everything. Have take up everything, space. Yes, take up space and take up lots of it. And the only thing that I would say is don't have a pen because you are not going to be there taking notes. Okay. Oh, I like that. Wait a minute. Say that again. Don't have a pen because we're not the secretary. No, we're not. So no, absolutely like not. Because no. I always have my pen. That, I'm going to stop carrying my pen. I, I leave it in my purse and in my bag to the very last minute so that no one even dares to ask me to take notes because everyone, mm -hmm. I, I or I volunteer a mail. I'll say, hey, someone's got to take notes. Uh, mm -hmm. Michael, let's get Michael to do it. And they're like, mm -hmm. what? Wait a minute, me? Like, yes, you, a man who takes some notes. Whoever, whatever man has the Shocking. best penmanship, whoever has the best penmanship, you're, that's your job. So there you go. And it's not me. <laughs> exactly. So never volunteer to take notes. Absolutely not. <laughs> well, Jennifer, you have become a sought after speaker. What events do you have coming up? Yeah, I am going to be at, uh, I think upcoming is, I'm going to be at ASCE National Convention in Anaheim that's coming up in October. And in November, it's going to be Procore in New mm. Orleans. So I'm really excited about that. Oh, you're going to be at Procore. Cool. Mm -hmm. I, I was just talking to them yesterday at, at the, in Minneapolis at the NAWIC conference. Yes, I'm so excited. They chose my topic and we're talking about, you know, why we need minorities and women in construction. And so I'm so glad to be talking about something that I'm very passionate about and that I can see as an avenue of getting out of this mess of a labor system. But also next year, too, Con Expo. I'm so mm. excited about Con Expo. So when is Con Expo? Con Expo is going to be in March of 2023. And so I'll be speaking about building relationships and, you know, being authentic when you do it. And also about the impact of opportunity, which is really about how I started an apprenticeship program and how our Green Intermodal has, has grown it into what it is today. Awesome. Okay. Now, if our listeners want to get a hold of your course and ebook or just find you and contact you, where can they go? They can find me on LinkedIn. That's my favorite platform. And it's Jennifer Todd MLS. And also, they can also go to our greenertomorrow.org and check out what we're doing there as well. Well, Jennifer Todd, president of LMS General Contractors and founder of A Greener Tomorrow. Thank you so much for joining us on the Hazard Girls podcast. You are doing the work, doing the hard work, and you're an amazing role model. We appreciate you so much. Thank you for being with us. And thank you for having me on, but also thank you for doing the work also. You are also doing the work and doing it very <laughs> well. So thank you for representing Thanks. us so well. Oh, thank you, Jennifer. Thanks a lot. You have been listening to the Hazard Girls podcast on Jacket Media, sponsored by Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company. That's junojonesshoes.com. And you can go there to learn about our steel toe boots and to join the Hazard Girls community. I'm your host, Emily Salaby. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.